day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Rose and Southerner podcast. My name is Jay, and I hope all is well. All right, ladies and gentlemen, last week, or actually on Friday, I teased that this was going to be an extremely good show, and I certainly hope you think it is because I think it's fascinating. We're going to be talking about something from World War II, actually just pre-war World War II, and it's something that makes sense if you think about it, but just to me, it always struck me as extremely out of character for the Nationalist Socialist Party and just Nazi Germany as a whole. It just doesn't seem like something that they would be involved with. Uh, but this was a very big part of the years that led up to World War II, at least as far as Germany was concerned. And I just you know, want you to think, what do you think about Germany or what do you think it was like in Germany leading up to the war. I mean, I always had an image of, you know, Hitler's brown shirts running around causing violence against dissenters, you know, people being executed in the streets on occasion, a lot of violence, a lot of oppression, a lot of government snatching up power and and just an oppressive atmosphere to the whole country. Uh, But the dirty little secret of totalitarianism is that is never how it begins. Um, Hitler was elected in a popular election. Um, I think he only got about 30% of the vote, but that was enough to put him into power. I think the most that people actually, I'm sorry if I can get my brain to point in the right direction, um, the most of the population that ever actually belonged to the Nationalist Socialist was about 30%. I mean, I kind of have this image in my head that everybody in Nazi Germany was a Nazi, but it's really closer to what we're seeing in our country with Democrats and Republicans. It's about 30% of the population are Democrats and about 30% are Republicans. And that's how totalitarianism usually comes into power. You know, they are brought in through uh, the will of the people, but it's never the majority and it's certainly never everybody, but it was enough for Hitler to come into power and get a stranglehold on the country. We also always think that Hitler was a lunatic. Now, Hitler was batshit crazy, and so were the party leaders. There's no arguing that. they The things that they wanted to do were insane. They were psychopaths as well. You can't do that to other humans without not feeling anything. But Hitler was not a raving lunatic. Um, now, certainly near the end of 44 and into 45, he was definitely becoming a little bit unhinged. But a lot of our opinion of that is based on the old news footage. And if you see news footage of Hitler with waving his hands and these very exaggerated motions, he looks a little crazy when he's doing that. Filming a speech was brand new at that point. Hitler did not behave that way with a video camera in mind. He was giving speeches to big crowds. Hitler actually apprenticed or did a mentorship or whatever you want to call it Uh, with an old vaudeville actor that taught him how to give speeches and and how to perform on stage for a big crowd like that. That's why his motions are so exaggerated, why it looks like he's swatting at flies when he's talking. When you see that up close, it looks unusually boisterous and big. If you're 50 rows back in an audience watching a play, A very exaggerated motion looks normal to you because you're so far away from it. Stage actors have to exaggerate their movements or the people in the balcony, it'll look like they're just standing there. But that's why Hitler waves his hands around and beats on the podium. 
it's not because he's a nut. It's because he's trying to look impassioned to the people that are watching him from 100 yards away. So, yes, Hitler was nuts, but he was not a lunatic. Him and the party elite were actually pretty intelligent people, and they had thought about things quite a bit. And you cannot just snatch up power and start oppressing the people. They'll revolt. If you look back at Roman times, the Roman poet Juvenal, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, and actually there's a lot of German and a couple of Italian words in here. I'm going to get tell you up front, I'm not going to pronounce those correctly either. But the poet Juvenal coined the term panem et circenses, which is the phrase that we've always heard is bread and circuses. Now, the poem that he wrote that phrase in, he was actually sort of lampooning the people of Rome because they're putting up with a lot of increasingly more autocratic policies, but nobody said anything because they were getting to go to the Colosseum. They were, there was plenty of food. Everybody was you know, fat and happy is a good way to look at it. Now, the party leaders in the Nazi party... They had read about Rome. They understood that you had to keep the population happy if they were going to be able to do all these insane things that they were wanting to do. Now, there was a movement within the Nazi party called the Deutsche Arbeitsfront, uh, the German Labor Front. And the Labor Front was sort of like a workers' union for the German people. Uh, the DAF, as it was usually just referred to, created a separate ministry ministry within the DAF that was called the Kraft Duck Freude. That translates to strength through joy. Initials for these things were big, so it was always just referred to as the KDF. Uh, but the KDF was based on something that the Italian fascists had organized. Uh, it was called Dopolavoro. Uh, basically means after work. And the after work program in Italy was basically just planned activities that the people of Italy could do in their free time. Now, the KDF emulated this program in Germany, and they put a man named Hermann Essler in charge of this ministry. And to quote James May, this meant that Hermann Essler was the minister of fun for Nazi Germany. And the main goal of the KDF, and the reason that I say it just feels so out of character for Nazi Germany was simply to provide entertainment and travel opportunities for the German workers. By the end of the KDF's run, um, it had 7,000 employees, about 125,000 volunteers, and they had what was a marshal. Um, I kind of equate them to a labor representative. Any workplace that had over 20 employees would have a marshal stationed at that place of business. And what the marshals were there for, um, the KDF put on concerts, plays, movies. Uh, they set up libraries. Uh, they had Get Fit Clubs, which was basically just a modern-day gym. Uh, it was somewhere where the workers could go exercise on their time off. Uh, they would set up day trips, like you think uh, retirees going to Atlantic City now, um, or even full-week vacations. Uh, the Marshals were sort of the liaison between the main KDF and all the planning boards that they had, and they would offer this stuff to the workers of Germany at a very affordable prices. The intent was to show the German people the benefits of living under nationalist socialism. But it wasn't just 
little local stuff like setting up theaters and putting on plays. Uh, they actually built two cruise liners, and there may have been more. I only found anything written about two cruise liners. One of them was the Robert Lay, and the other was the Wilhelm Gustloff. Now, these ships were, I mean, these were for the day. Obviously, if you put it up against a modern cruise ship, it wouldn't be very big. Uh, but both of these ships were close to the size of the Titanic. These were major sea liners that they were building to take the German people on cruises. And they would go all around the Baltic Sea, into the Mediterranean, probably further. But those were the most of the routes that I found were, were fairly local around Europe. And the KDF also had a film industry that they ran. Um, they actually produced a movie that was sort of Titanic-esque, and it, it, I, I don't speak German, so it may have been a Titanic story, but it was shot on one of these cruise ships. I believe it was the Robert Lay, but I'm not sure. Uh, but they actually produced feature-length films, and one of them was shot aboard one of these cruise ships that they built. And the KDF also built a huge holiday complex. Um, it was on the island of Rügen in the Baltic Sea. The resort itself was called the Colossus at Prora. That's P-R-O-R-A. Uh, get on the internet and look up this complex. It is massive. Uh, once it was completed, it was supposed to house at any given time, what, I mean, capacity would have been 20,000 people at a time. And the buildings, they all run along parallel to the beach on this island. They stretch for two miles. I mean, it was just an absolutely massive complex that they built. Now, Prora never opened to the public. None of the German people ever got to go on holiday there because war broke out in 1939, which was, I don't know that they ever completed Prora, um, but it was very close. The buildings are still there, and you can see pictures and footage from inside the buildings. But nobody ever actually went there on a holiday. The war broke out before it got to that point. Again, though, you need to look up pictures of Prora. It is impressive. I mean, it is, like I say, it is just an absolutely massive resort that they built on the Baltic Sea. Now, I said before that the main intent of the KDF was to show the German people the benefits of the Nazi Party and living under their regime. But they also were expected to draw tourism in from other parts of the country, or I'm sorry, other parts of the world. And to that end, they functioned just like any other travel board for a country or, you know, here in the States, I'll see commercials on TV for visit California, visit Maine, you visit Alaska. You know, these are ads that were put out by an agency in that state trying to drum up tourism to that particular state. Well, the KDF was doing the exact same thing for the country of Germany. They were putting out advertisements in magazines and newspapers. Uh, they made up brochures that they would send around to different countries to put in waiting rooms and wherever you'd see brochures for travel destinations. Um, actually, in one of those brochures, and I would love to see one of these in, in real life, there, there has to be some that are still out there. Uh, they featured the carnival at Cologne, Germany, and it was a series of photos of a man attending the carnival. Uh, the man that they were using for these photos was Joseph Goebbels. Joseph Goebbels is one of the most vile human beings that has ever lived, and as 
you just a murderer's row of horrible, horrible people that humanity has produced all throughout history. That is saying something. And it would just blow my mind to see photos of him smiling and riding the carousel at some carnival with, you know, Visit Germany slogan underneath of it. That would be wild. Now, as I said, when the war broke out, the KDF was, was mothballed. Uh, they needed those people and resources to go to other things at that point, obviously. But in 1939, when it was disbanded, the KDF was the largest tourism organization in the world. Uh, I told you earlier they had 7,000 employees, 125,000 volunteers. It's estimated that the KDF sold about 45 million travel packages to Germans and people from around the world in the time that they were operating. So the KDF ended in... 1939, but there is one more little project of the KDF that actually outlived it by many, many, many years. And while most people have not heard of Krakduk Freude, this one project, every single person, pretty much everybody on this planet is familiar with the fruits of their labor. Hitler wanted to design and produce a car for the German workers. When it became known that he was looking for an auto manufacturer to build this car for the people, he was approached by Ferdinand Porsche. Obviously, I'm talking about the Volkswagen Beetle. And the mythology is that while Ferdinand Porsche designed the engine and the frame and the steering components and all of that, Hitler supposedly drew on a napkin what he wanted the car to look like. Now, the car is called the Beetle because it looks like a Beetle, but that was not something that came about because the car looks like a Beetle. Hitler intended for the vehicle to look like a Beetle. Hitler was a bit of an amateur naturalist, and he believed that the shape of a Beetle was as close to perfectly aerodynamic as you could get, and he wanted Porsche to build a vehicle based on the shape of a Beetle. Now, another fun fact about the Volkswagen is that since it was designed by Ferdinand Porsche and built in a Porsche factory, the first hundred or so that were built pre-war are technically Porsches. They couldn't be Volkswagens because Volkswagen didn't exist yet. And interestingly enough, the vehicle was never called the Volkswagen by Hitler or anybody in the Nazi party. That came after the war when they finally went into production. Uh, the actual name of the car, it was a KDF project. So the actual name of the Volkswagen Beetle would have been the Kraftduck Freudewagen, which doesn't quite roll off the tongue the way Volkswagen does, but that's what it would have been called at the time. But anyway... Uh, Ferdinand Porsche uh, designed and built about 50 of the Volkswagen Beetles. They were not for sale to the public at this time. They were given to the party leaders. You can see archival footage of parades and rallies where the party leaders would come riding in on a Volkswagen. That was mostly done as a marketing campaign to the people of Germany trying to sell them this vehicle. Um, they, Like I said, they were not in production yet. Uh, Germany was trying to raise money to build the factory. Now, they did this in a couple of interesting ways. Uh, the, the KDF made up little coin holders and gave them away to children for them to put coins in to save for a Volkswagen Beetle. The workers could purchase stamps each week. It was, you know, like, think uh, 
H&H green stamps, or if you're from the part of the country I'm from, there were gold stamps, but you had a little stamp book, and every week you would buy a stamp for five marks. You put the stamp in the book, and when the book was full, I think it was two years is how long it would take you, you could redeem that book for a Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, the caveat was, if you missed a week at any time during those two years, you lost all your money. You didn't get any of it back, and you couldn't get a car. You would, I'm sure you could start over, but if you missed a week, you missed your chance. It was over. Now, that sounds like a sweet, wholesome little story, uh, but remember, we're talking about socialism, and we're also talking about Nazi Germany. So there is a little bit of a twist ending to this story. Hitler took all the money that was raised from the little kids saving their coins and the families buying their five-mark stamp every week, and they did build the factory that was going to build the Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, it was mostly built using slave labor from Russian prisoners. And once the factory was complete, instead of producing Volkswagen Beetles, they started producing the Kugelwagen, which is the small, light scout vehicle, uh, sort of Germany's counterpart to the Jeep that the Allies used. But basically, Hitler stole all that money from the people of Germany and used it to fund his war machine. After the war was over, uh, this particular factory was bombed during the last days of the war. Uh, the Allies were salvaging material out of that factory, and they found the plans for the car and a couple of not-too-badly-damaged of the prototypes. Um, now, this just sort of sat there for a couple of years, and then someone got the idea of offering the car and the rights to produce it to various factions of the Allies as sort of recompense for expenses incurred during the war. Um, it was offered to all of the major British car manufacturers. It was offered to the big three in America. Nobody wanted to touch it. One of the Ford execs thought it was the most ridiculous looking car he'd ever seen and said that would never sell. Nobody would ever buy that car. And keep in mind, they weren't offering them the right to make it like a licensing agreement. They would have owned the design and the vehicle itself. Uh, eventually, it went back to a German holdings corporation that was set up after the war. Eventually, an investor purchased it and created Volkswagen and put the car into production. Uh, and of course, Volkswagen has become one of the best-selling vehicles of all time. Uh, it is not the number one. A lot of people seem to think it's the number one selling vehicle. It may or may not be the best selling car. Uh, but if you're talking vehicles, the best selling vehicle of all time is the Honda Super Cub by a factor of about three to one. Nothing else is even close to it. But it's interesting to think about how differently history would have been if, if we had the Chevrolet Beetle instead of the Volkswagen. Okay, so that's my story about the Kraftdruck Freude Ministry in Nazi Germany. It just always, this always fascinated me. You know, you think anytime you see a Nazi in a movie, they're always portrayed as just this very stodgy, fanatical, dispassionate, just almost an automaton, you know, completely under the sway of the party leaders. But then you had this little group over here that were in charge of setting up theaters in the round and scheduling beach parties for everybody. It's just such a dichotomy from what you expect of the Nazi party. And it just fascinates me to no end. And mostly because that this is never taught. I kind of think maybe they don't want to humanize 
Nazi Germany, and this would kind of make it seem like, yeah, well, these, you know, they were doing terrible things, but these were people too. But history is full of stories like this, and I do not for the life of me understand why we're not taught this stuff in school. This is interesting. This makes history feel real. I mean, I know we've got to memorize the dates of major events. That's important to know too, but that's just dull as dishwater. And if they would throw some of these stories in, I think a lot of people would enjoy history a heck of a lot more. And you can definitely, you can retain stuff like this a hell of a lot better than you can of what day the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. And I could probably remember that date if I had learned in history class that the reason they stopped at Plymouth Rock is because they ran out of beer and they were stopping to brew more. That's a story for another day, though, because that's about all I've got for you today, guys. I actually will cover that story because that's funny. Uh, It'd be a good Thanksgiving Day conversation. But all right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, This fascinates the heck out of me, like I said. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, If you did enjoy, leave me a like, uh, subscribe, uh, share it with your friends. I don't do any advertising for this show. Like I said, it's a hobby. Uh, So if I can get some good word of mouth and pick up some viewers that way, that would be fantastic. I'm sorry, listeners, not viewers. Uh, But guys, if you want to leave me a comment, as always, you can do so with the Facebook page or at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com. All right, guys, I will talk to you again on Friday. I hope you have a good week. Uh, Enjoy yourself, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you very much.